Hello and welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm George. And I'm Claire. So there's been a lot happening at UCL over the past couple of weeks, so we've got a jam-packed episode for you today. Yes, this week saw the formal launch of the UCL Academy, the first secondary school in the country to have a university as its sole sponsor. So it's based in Swiss Cottage and it's adopting a radical approach to learning that will give school students opportunities to learn from the world-leading researchers here and also follow a curriculum designed in collaboration with UCL. So we've got a short interview with the Academy's principal Geraldine Davies which gives us a bit more information about her vision for the school later on in the podcast. Yes we do and we're very excited about the Academy and also having had a look around the school at the launch we're also very jealous of the students. Yeah who it's really amazing. So uh, our other feature this week hails from the UCL Institute of Archaeology where academics have been rewriting the history of Stonehenge. Led by Professor Parker Pearson new discoveries around the site have led a team of archaeologists to believe that the original Stonehenge was actually a graveyard for a community of elite families that was built 500 years earlier than the site that we know today. And this week the Institute of Making also opened at UCL. Designed with the idea of putting making back at the heart of university thinking, the Institute gives a permanent home to the Materials Library, which is a collection of the most unusual materials in the world, and also the Make Space, which is the ultimate making workshop. And would you know it, we've got the Institute of Making's creative director, Zoe Laughlin, with us in the podcast. Tell us a bit more about it. Hello. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Hi, Zoe. Uh, So the Institute of Making is now open, which is fantastic. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what you've got there and what the Institute will be doing, please? Yeah, so as you mentioned in the introduction, the Institute of Making is a space that really wants to celebrate materials and making and put kind of a hands-on engagement with them back at the heart of what a university education can be. So in the space we have at the front of it, a sort of floor-to-ceiling wonder cabinet of materials. We've even got like a little ladder that goes from side to side that you can go up and down and take materials down off the shelves, prod them, put them back on the shelves, put them down to talk about them with different experts and then move further back into the back of the space where we've got our make space workshop and I like to think of that as my dream garden shed really it's got a bit of everything um but for any different discipline so you could we've got an oven and a microwave a kiln a set of sewing machines a wood lathe metal lathes 3d printer laser cutters a fantastic suite of hand tools and power tools so sort of a bit of all sorts of different making equipment that could be Um, used for various appropriate and inappropriate uses. We we like the idea of doing like a day about squishiness. So we take squishy materials and we make them in the workshop. We look at the squishy materials in the library. Then we end up kind of looking at (laughs) bread dough and then turning bread on our potter's wheel and then baking our bread pots in the oven. (laughs) So you sort of use one material and a different tool and mix it all up and see what you make. Kind of like Play-Doh in the oven or something like that. What's a squishy material? Give us an example. Well, I mean... You could think of something like jelly or bread dough okay. being pretty squishy. But then actually the things like jellies, be it from a biology point of view, mm. look at the alginates that you grow things on. They have various degrees of squishiness or rigidity. And it's sort of kind of flippant to say, oh, a day on squishiness and it's all about playing. But at the same time, there's some serious material science that goes into m- measuring mm. values of and specific properties of materials and you can have all sorts of different disciplines come together over such a topic so as I said you could have a biologist come in we could have a chef come in and they'd kind of come together over these topics and over materials to have really interesting conversations. I mean the idea I guess is that you're going to get people who are from outside 
I guess, normal university people. So people like chefs and artists and whoever else. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a whole series of masterclasses lined up where different experts come in and teach their making discipline. But around that, we have different discussions. So, for example, we've got a guy coming in who makes neon signs, so glass tubes filled with neon gas that you pass electricity through and produce light. But you'll get a chance to, you know, make a glass tube, fill it with the gas of your desire to produce the colour of your desire, and then at the same time attend a talk from a chemist about the different gases that, you know, why do they produce these different colours? And and then think about different illumination, you know, methods anyway and look at mm. maybe other light bulb manufacturing techniques. And so it's there's sort of provocations really to start conversations. Start, start off the yeah. process of everything. And then access different research questions okay. really. That sounds so amazing. How it? can people, I mean, if I wanted to make a neon light sign or come to one, to your, one of your workshops, could I come along or how does it work? Well, I guess we are a essentially a, a members organisation and the, mm-hmm. at the first instance, members are any staff or student of UCL. So if you're staff or student of UCL, you may be a professor, you may be an undergrad, you may be a caterer. You t- come along and you sign up on our website, you book yourself on an induction. Then when you've been signed off as having your first induction, we enable your card and you can swipe and come in. And some equipment you can book, others you just turn up and use. Then you'll be able to attend events and masterclasses. But that's our kind of baseline activity. Then on top of that, we have a public events programme and opportunities for people who aren't at UCL to come and and use the space and engage with us. So the last Saturday of every month, we have an open day, for example, just to get as many people in. You had your first one on Saturday, which was a bit exciting, I hear. It was overwhelming. (laughs) It was fantastic. But we had no idea that so many people would come. It's a really exciting project. Um, There's loads more information, as Zoe says, on their website. And I think we'll be keeping quite a close eye on developments over there as well. So yeah, very um, much so. Just just don't put Breddo in the the 3D printer, because that will probably break it. (laughs) I don't know. Will it? Probably. Good. Okay. Chocolate's good in the printer. Whoa. Okay, thanks, Zoe. Um, so now for a roundup of other events and opportunities happening around UCL. So this week, an art exhibition at UCL brings together six works by artists from Iraq and Britain to explore different experiences of the Iraq war on the 10th anniversary of the invasion. Um, yeah. yeah, it includes artworks by um, professional artists, anti-war campaigners, and also a ex-British soldier. So it's basically presenting a broader range of artistic responses to the war than is usually seen in the UK. Yep, the exhibition has been curated by Alan Ingram in UCL Geography and is running in the North Lodge until the 27th of March. So you haven't got long to go and see it, but do pop down and have a look. Yep, definitely do. Um, So that's all the news we got for this week, but do stay tuned to listen to an interview with uh, the the new principal of the UCL Academy, Geraldine Davis, who spoke to us last year about her vision for the school. I've been a teacher a long time. I've been a teacher in London schools a long time. And there is a, a definite appeal for anyone who's been involved in any sort of leadership role in schools, I think, to be given a, a brand new building, a, a, a piece of, you know, a clean piece of paper in effect to, to recruit all your own staff, recruit students, design the curriculum. And certainly UCL as a sponsor, I thought was quite a unique and exciting opportunity. So it was for those, you know, separate sets of reasons that this particular post was particularly exciting. The Academy's been designed with the input from academics, in particular the sorts of resources, the sorts of learning spaces. Um, There's been a lot of consultation prior to my appointment. 
about what facilities we should have and how they should be configured. So if the science demonstration theatre, for example, has been built so that when professors and you know, researchers come to do their presentations and work with the students, they're in an ideal, you know, they're in an ideal setting. The curriculum we're choosing to use is the International Middle Years curriculum. But the big advantage of using this particular curriculum is because it's being used in British schools around the world, then children who are working in the UCL Academy could have a direct link with school children in Beijing or in Cape Town or in Italy, all communicating obviously in English because it's a British school, but all working on the same sorts of projects at the same time. And I think that puts us into a very different sort of connectedness across the world. Where I've, we've made the statement that we will all learn Mandarin, I mean we will all learn Mandarin. So staff, sixth form, and we won't be thinking it's going to be a long-term preparation to GCSE. We'll be looking at different sorts of accreditation to come at different points. I think it's a good model for collective learning. You learn from, and, the, and children can then see it isn't something that we only do half an hour and then we get a little bit to do it. And then and if, you, if you're not very good at the first time, every time you open your mouth, you reinforce the fact that you're not very good at it. So I think by sharing that and experiencing it with adults who are in a similar position is a quite a useful philosophical approach, a different way of approaching um, teaching of languages. I think the biggest difference I want to have made is to, to be able to demonstrate that a large London comprehensive can be arranged, organised in a different sort of way where children's engagement in their own learning enables them to thrive. Many thanks for Geraldine for speaking to us. There's more information about the Academy and how we're working with the school on our new microsite www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash luciel hyphen academy. And to finish off the podcast this week, we also take a fresh look at Stonehenge, exploring recent discoveries that have overturned the accepted view on construction and also use of our greatest prehistoric monument. The new findings were revealed for the first time in a special Channel 4 documentary, and we caught up with Professor Mike Parker-Pearson from the UCL Institute of Archaeology to find out more. My name is Mike Parker-Pearson and I'm a professor in the Institute of Archaeology. We've recently published a new chronology for Stonehenge. Stonehenge is at the centre of a long-lived ceremonial landscape. In 2008 our excavations along the avenue, the ceremonial approach into Stonehenge, uh, we discovered that the banks of that avenue were actually put on top of what seemed to be natural landforms. So ridges and in between them wide and deep um, fissures caused by periglacial activity in the last ice age, which actually lines up with the sun's maximum extents at sunrise and sunset 
uh, midsummer sunrise, midwinter sunset. So it may well be that these were seen as somehow of cosmological significance, where the earth and the heavens came together. Thanks to our excavations, not just by our own team, but other teams over the last 20 years, we've now established that Stonehenge was built in a series of different stages. First of all, shortly after 3000 BC, it begins with a bank and a ditch, but also upstanding features such as standing stones and timber posts. It's also at that moment that people started to use it as a cemetery and it continued being used as a cemetery for at least 200 years and probably 500 years. Uh, it's then that the, the next stage of construction was uh, put up, and that is these large sarsen stones, they're a type of sandstone, they come from the Marlborough Downs about 20 miles away, whereas the smaller stones already in place had come from the Priscelli Hills in West Wales, a distance of 180 miles. We started work about 10 years ago and our initial uh, emphasis was not on Stonehenge itself but actually on a nearby henge called Durrington Walls and what we established was that Stonehenge was just one part of this much larger complex linked by avenues to the River Avon. What we discovered were the houses of what must have been not just hundreds of people but thousands of people and it was there that we were able to work out that this was quite probably the workers camp and through radiocarbon dating and statistical modelling of all those dates we could see that it had been inhabited for less than 45 years. So we think that that's the time period in which Stonehenge was built. One of our other major advances was to find out at what times of year people were actually inhabiting this village. Because although it's the largest known settlement from the Neolithic in northwestern Europe, it seems to have been occupied only seasonally. People coming in for particular times of the year. And we can track that by investigating the culling of the animals because uh, thanks to the, the way that their teeth grow, you can age them quite precisely to within months. So from spring birth, we were seeing that the majority were killed around nine months later, and then the rest of them uh, some 15 months from birth. So this really fixed the occupation of this large settlement to the winter time and the summer time. And of course, those are extremely important uh, points within the Neolithic calendar at Stonehenge because Stonehenge's main alignment is towards the midsummer sunrise and in the opposite direction the midwinter sunset. Within Britain we get a, a proportion of the cattle teeth which have a signal that we can only match in Highland Scotland and maybe Aberdeenshire the types of houses they lived in, the style of pottery that they were making, the very concept of the henge itself. These all seem to have originated 
in some very small islands off the north coast of Scotland that we call the Orkney Islands. To find cattle coming from almost as far away, I mean, that suggests that not only were people from Orkney also coming to this do, but the, you know, the innovations that brought the whole of Britain together actually come from the very extreme edge of, of this country. What we're seeing is at least five constructional stages at Stonehenge. One shortly after 3000 BC, one around 2500. Then two small phases of rearranging the smaller stones in the next um, three, four hundred years. And then a, a very last gasp somewhere around 1500, 1600 BC. They dig holes apparently to move stones, but the stones are never moved. Whatever they planned never succeeded. The, those last stages of construction also coincide with a fundamental social change in Britain, and that's the arrival of uh, what we call the Beaker people. This is a continental style of ceramics and burial, but also an entirely new lifestyle. These are people that have been using metals, the wheel and other innovations which have been absolutely absent from Britain for hundreds of years. So Britain was basically cut off from the continent uh, uh, up until the arrival of the Beaker people around 2400 BC. They are much more individualizing than the, the collective power structure within Britain. They also are not prepared to work en masse for just a few people. So the great monument building that's going on in Britain at this time, and it's not just Stonehenge, but many other timber circles, stone circles, earthen mounds of giant proportions like Silbury Hill. These come to an end within two centuries of Beaker arrival. They're coming from parts of Europe that don't have these kinds of traditions at all. They don't have these great gathering centres. It's a much more dispersed, decentralised uh, social structure and as it's adopted in Britain, so the whole rationale for these kinds of mega constructions simply disappears. What's exciting for us is that we're going to be able to investigate the sources of the stones for Stonehenge. The Sarsons themselves, the sources may have been discovered 300 years ago by someone uh, that we would call an antiquarian, a sort of from the early days of archeology. span And some 20 miles north of Stonehenge, he actually wrote detailed notes of where he saw holes that he reckoned the stones had been brought from. Uh, no one's ever been back to look. It sounds extraordinary, but they haven't. Uh, the other area of interest is West Wales, and it's an area just north of the Preseli Hills and on the northern flanks of those hills where the stones that we call blue stones, and these are the smaller ones, they're on average about two tonnes each, where they seem to have been quarried and brought. So we're going to be investigating the quarries, and again, up till now, they've never been located, and we suspect that they may have been associated with their own 
henge, if we're right that the structure we've identified is, it is by far the largest henge in Wales. And that may give us a really important clue into what Stonehenge was all about, because there's the possibility now that, that Stonehenge was actually constructed using the raw materials of two separate henges in two different parts of Britain, and thereby actually unifying the two of them into a single entity. We're starting to think of Stonehenge not as a temple where people come on pilgrimages and come to worship on a long-term basis. All our evidence suggests that it is used in a very punctuated form over time. People come, they construct, they feast, they go away. And this is really changing our notion of Neolithic religious belief, uh, that it's all in the building rather than the idea of building something in order to do something with it, which is very much our 20th century take on the world. Um, what we have at Darrington Walls, uh, if we're right that this is the work camp, is that the houses show that we have entire household groups. So we're looking at men and women and children being involved in the whole thing. The, the huge concentration of resources shows that this is a very sophisticated infrastructure to support them. This is for people coming from the width and breadth of the whole island of Britain. So it's more than simply unnecessary food miles to bring those animals from all over the country. It's, it has to be part of a very deliberate act of unifying and bringing people together. And that's all we have for this show, but we'll be back in a fortnight with more news and features from UCL. If you want to get in touch in the meantime, you can tweet us at UCL News or email us at mynews at ucl.ac.uk. Bye.